I'm uh, glad uh, uh, that you guys are here, and I am privileged to be here to bring the word to you this morning. And uh, um, yeah, it's just as uh, our brother David prayed, there, there's so much going on in the world around us. Should we readjust? Oh. <laughs> They've taken the mic away from me. No, no, I'm, I'm still okay. Um, <clears throat> but um, there is so much that is happening around us in, in the world. There's so much happening around us, probably in your individual lives, and there's, uh, whether it's work issues, whether it's relational problems, whether it's challenges in terms of a school or other responsibilities that you have, I mean, all of those things compounded with all the things that are our responsibilities as believers. You add all of that together, and there's a good chance that a lot of you guys could use a little bit of fuel a little bit of spiritual energy, and maybe a little bit of a refreshment. And I hope that that's what we'll find from the scriptures, a, a charge for us, a call for us to return to the Lord in awesome and holy devotion. We'll look at Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. It's a passage that's probably so familiar to you, it would shock me if at least some of you guys, if not most of you guys, have memorized it. That you guys know this passage by heart, and it, I... I promise you I will not be teaching you anything brand new. That would be probably weird and, and a little frightening and, and maybe not trustworthy, right? If I gave you something brand new, it's probably heretical. This, this is a standard passage, but I want to, us to unpack it in a way that calls us to recognize that devotion and a return to devotion or a commitment to devotion is really what you need first. Yeah, you got job responsibilities, work responsibilities. You got these things you got to handle. You got to talk to this person because these things are tense, etc. You, you, as a believer, right? This is uh, chapter 12 of Romans, and we're about to drift into. You need to exercise your gifts in the body of Christ. You need to, you need to love other believers and uh, demonstrate the character of Christ in your interaction with others. You need to submit to authority. You need to be careful about the weaker brother and their, and their sensitivities. You want to be an example of Christ. There's so much stuff here and here that you need to accomplish. And I think Romans 12, 1 and 2 is designed intentionally to take us from one portion of this book to all the dues that we have to, responsibility to accomplish. In other words... Um, Romans 12, 1 through 2 is really a pivot. In the book of Romans, and, and remember we call it the book of Romans, but remember it's a long letter. And if you never had an opportunity, you should. Whenever you hit an epistle, try to read the entire thing all at once. Maybe read it out loud. The reason why that would be helpful to you is because that's exactly how the first Christians, the Roman Christians, that's how they received it. A messenger came and said, hey, the Apostle Paul has a letter for you guys. And everyone said, oh, okay, let's hear the letter. And he would literally read from verse 1, chapter 1, all the way through the rest of the letter. And here in chapter 12, 1 through 2, there is a strong pivot because chapters 1 through 11 has been just, just theology. It's been doctrine. And after, right, beginning in chapter 12, after these two verses, it's about Christian duty. You can almost say that it's the theology, right? And then it's the practice. It's the doctrine and it's the duty. And right wedged in between those, the bridge that gets us from doctrine, from teaching to doing, are these two verses. Devotion. So let me say it this way. The bridge 
between doctrine and doing or duty is devotion. Is our devotion, our commitment, our re-energizing, recalibrating of our mind and our heart to worshiping the, G- the, the Savior, Jesus Christ, who is spoken of in the first 11 chapters very thoroughly, right? And who we're trying to honor by how we live in the concluding chapters after these two verses. So Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, let me read it to you. And then let's, uh, let's try to unpack this for us a little bit. Romans 12, starting verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, even as we come before you, recognizing your majesty and your great mercy for us, we ask that you would um, unpack these words to our souls, that the word of God would be implanted and that we would think rightly and carefully and thoroughly about what it means to be devoted to you, what it means to worship you, not just with song, not just in a moment, not just by way of music, but in our very lives, the decisions that we make, the hopes that we have, the imaginations that we are shaping, Lord, how we are using our mind and engaging our hearts and using our hands and, and utilizing all that you have granted to us in resource, Lord, may that be used for your glory. But Father, we know without, uh, without a heart being renewed and devotion and worship to you, it'll just be drudgery. It'll just be work. And we pray not for a faith that feels like it's just work upon work, endless doing upon doing, but a faith that feels revitalized and alive, that feels the affection of our God and is glad and joyful to worship and serve Him well. I pray for this church. We thank you for them. We ask that you continue to pour your grace upon them and that each member would find the joy of fellowship and encouragement and would, um, would both challenge and love one another well so that uh, they would together in unity uh, live out and display what it means to be followers of Jesus Christ. We thank you for this time. Thank you for the baptism that we are about to, to witness and give praise for your salvation in every soul because you are our God and Savior. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're here in uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 2, and it, it is a singular call to devotion. And I, I just want you to understand something, right? Like if it was, if Christian duty, just if, if you're underlining, um, italicizing, or both facing the word duty, right? It, it just feels like drudgery. And our faith can feel like that. It can feel like pharisaical, religious, having to do stuff. Hey, why, why, are you, why are you going to church? Because I have to. It can feel like that, right? Hey, um, um, you, you going somewhere? You going to that Bible study? Yeah, I'm supposed to, you know? Oh, wait, are you writing a check to the church? Or, or I guess you guys are online giving. Are you tapping your phone to give to the church, right? He said, yeah, I'm, I got to do it. That's drudgery, right? That's a have to. 
That's a works mentality, and that really is not what our relationship to our Savior is supposed to be. But it could feel like that. See, duty without devotion is drudgery. But duty infused with affection, that's delight. That's because I want to. And that's what we want as believers. We need to recognize that we're saved by the blood of Jesus Christ so that we represent him in this world, not because we have to, but because we want to. Can I give you an illustration? Um, I have had the privilege of doing dozens and presiding over dozens and dozens of weddings. Um, I don't know how many. I I guess it's close to 100 at this point. I I got white hairs, right? I'm, I'm old. Right? Um, and and then if you just add in all the other weddings that I have been at or participated in, yeah, it's got to be like in the hundreds. And in all of those, whenever whoever's presiding, whether it's me or another pastor, whoever's presiding, when they say, you may kiss the bride, you know what I haven't seen? I haven't seen the, the, the groom go, you know? Usually doesn't, if anything, it's like, hey, slow down, man. Like, like let's, let's keep this G-rated. Hold on. What's going on, right? Like, they're so excited. And why, why, is, why is that not a duty, drudgery, forced work or labor? Because it's infused with affection. And see, I, what I'm trying to get you to understand is when we look at these two verses, like, Paul is about to transition for some of the greatest and most wondrous theological truths that he has written in the New Testament, right? He's talked about how deep our sin is. How deep is it? Well, every one of us, before Christ, we're suppressing, right? We're suppressing the truth of God and unrighteousness. We're creating our own gods. We're pretending there is no God. We're doing whatever we wanted to do. And it turns out it's not, it's not just us. It's not just the Gentiles. But it's the Jewish people too. It's everybody. It's every human being. In fact, if you are a child of Adam, you have inherited not a physical chromosome, but a spiritual one. You are born in your sin and sinfulness. You're born with the sin nature. So much so that Adam has passed on to us not just sin, but also spiritual death. So we will definitely, we are walking dead people when it comes to spiritual. So this is how bad it is. And as bad as it is, God has given us a solution in Jesus Christ. What do we deserve? We deserve eternal death. We deserve eternal punishment. And yet here is Jesus Christ. So Romans 6, 23 says, what is the penalty of sin? The wages, the thing that sin pays us is death. But, and this is so magnificent, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is the kind of theology that Paul has been unpacking, the faithfulness of God to deliver his people. The, the, the different notions, like what does it mean that Abraham believed and is credited to him as righteousness? Because we can similarly believe and we can, be, we can be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It goes on and on. So with all of that said, with all of that doctrine, all that good theology that he has given to us, before he shifts to now you need to love your brother, and you need to submit to government, and you need to take care of the gospel message in the world. Before he shifts to all of that duty, he reminds us, all of this is meant to infuse and inform an affection so that all of this not just feels like you have to, but it begins to feel like you want to. That that is the whole entire purpose 
of this particular two verses to call us to devotion, to bridge us from doctrine to duty. So let's look at verse 1, or the first half of verse 1. Verse 1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Take that first phrase, though. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. The motivation, the motivation for devotion, for our devotion to Christ, is God's mercy. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. Now, you notice the word brothers and the appeal. Those two combined tell us that he is appealing to us, but he's also appealing by way of affection. He cares about us. And it, uh, if you want to take another synonym for that word appeal, right, it, it means to urge somebody, to beseech somebody, to beg somebody to do this. And Paul, before he leaves all of the doctrine behind, he's saying, listen, I've got to urge you. I've got to make sure that you understand how big this is. Drill this down into your soul, my brothers and sisters in Christ. See that affection there? He's saying, I am going to urge you desperately to put this before you. And here's, here's the basis. Here's the motivation for our devotion, our commitment, our desire to worship our Savior by the way that we live. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. By the mercies of God. And we already talked about a little bit, Romans has been unpacking for us the reality that as, as human beings, you and I were sinners. I'm no better than any other sinner. You are no better than me or any other sinner. We are all in the same boat. And if we're left to ourselves, we deserve eternal damnation. But God has sent Christ, his son, to live a perfect life and to die so that if we would trust in that death, that his death would die for the death that I deserve. He would die my debt. He would pay my penalty. God doesn't wink, wink at sin and go, hey, you know what? You are one of my favorite people, Nam. And because you're one of my favorite people, like these other guys, they sin. Oh, I'm going to squash those fools. But you, you are my special guy, so I'm going to pretend nothing happened, right? No, that, that would not be a just God. He would not be a righteous God. He would not be a just judge. No, every penalty has to be paid in full. Every sin must be paid in full. And would be paid either by me in eternity or to be paid by Jesus Christ because I've trusted him to be my Savior. So with all of that unpacked, the question is, why would God do such a thing? Right? I mean, if you're God, why, why, would, why would you be nice to sinner like this? You know, the answer is, I don't know. It does come up in Romans, you know, and God simply says, well, um, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And we go, what? So that's your answer. Your answer, Lord, if I say, Lord, why did you choose me? Your answer is, nah, I decided to love you. And yeah, that, that's his answer. His answer is literally, nobody tells me what to do. He is God. And in his godhood, he chose to cast his mercy, his love, his grace upon some. None of them deserved it, but he desired to cast his mercy on some. So when the appeal to devotion, to be wholeheartedly desirous to worship the Lord with our entire lives, he is saying, I'm appealing to you, I'm urging you, I'm begging you, brothers, sisters. Why? Because God is merciful. Because this is how you came into it. Because this is the gospel. This is the good news. That you deserve death. 
But instead, you not only got forgiveness of sins, but you are his child. He didn't just eradicate your sins for that moment and said, okay, okay, I'm going to forgive you to this point, cancel these debts, and now if you ever sin again, though, flick, you go straight to hell. This is, this, I'm having, a, I've had enough of you, right? No, he cast his, the righteousness of Christ upon us and he sees us as righteous. This is his mercy, his love for us. God is the kind of God that has been gracious to us in the gospel in ways that is not understandable. Years and years and years ago, when I, you know, when I was about to get married, um, my grandmother from Korea came to visit because she wanted to come for the wedding. And um, I, hadn't, you know, I hadn't seen her since I was a baby. And so um, she's not a believer, so I thought I would try to share the gospel with her. My Korean my Korean's terrible. Right, so my mom is helping, and so we're just talking to her and stuff, and um, and you know it took a while trying to figure out how to say certain things, etc. But we trying to share the gospel to her that that she is a sinner, that I'm a sinner, and that sinners deserve the righteous wrath of God, but that God has given us a means of escape. He's He's provided for us a sacrifice that'll take our place and forgive us our sins if we trust in that. And, um, and after sharing the gospel, and she was kind, she listened to us, she, she asked some questions, and then she said, you know what, it just doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make any sense to me. And to her, it's like, maybe it's because you guys, you know, grew up in America, you know, you guys, it's a Western thing, maybe, you know, she's saying, but it just, it, the whole concept doesn't make any sense. And, and it bothered me, and to, to no end, we prayed for her, and she never did come to accept Jesus Christ as her Savior. But I, that resonates with me, the idea that it doesn't make sense. Because, guys, let's face it, it doesn't, right? Why would God save you? I mean, I don't, listen, I don't know all your sins. I know that you're a sinner. I know that it's theologically true. I believe it. And if I ask you, you probably tell me, yeah, I sin. I don't know the particulars of your sin. I don't know the depths of your heart, etc. But I know the depths of mine. And if, I were, if someone had asked me, you know, why would God save someone like you? I would say, dude, I have no idea. I've got to be honest with you. If I was God, I wouldn't have chose me. I, was just, I would have chose somebody that was a little bit more decent, right? I would have gone by something that is more worthwhile in that individual. Why did he choose me? Why did he choose him? I don't know. But that's God's mercy to you. Do you understand? Do you understand the value of the gospel and the death of Jesus Christ for you? What kind of God is it that we worship? Yes, he is righteous and holy and will, will not renege on his promise to destroy sin. So how can he rescue sinners like you and me? By allowing his son, the one beloved son, to die in our place, to take our penalty. Guys, Grace and mercy is something that is, that is absolutely mind-blowing. And any unbeliever that, that tells you, man, it just doesn't make sense, I'm there with them. I've I, I got to agree, it doesn't make sense. Not, not that God is righteous and that sin is bad part, but that God would be gracious and merciful to us. So see, here's the motivation, right? The motivation To be devoted to our God is because he is that merciful. Let me me say one more thing about one of those words. 
I appeal to you, therefore, brethren. It goes back to everything that has gone before. Uh, I think we already said that ad nauseum. I'm not going to add more to that. But I will say this. There's a practicality to recognizing that this appeal, to, the appeal to follow Jesus Christ in a way that honors him and that honors and pleases our Heavenly Father, that the appeal is based on something that has come before, all the doctrinal things, including God's mercies that have come before. That is significant for us in terms of how we apply the basis of everything that we do. Parents, you know, you probably at some point have used, you know, that, that, that interesting phrase, because I said so, right? Um, I know I've used that more often than I probably should have, right? It's like, because at some point, it's like, hey, can you do this? It's like, why? It's like, Cause, can you do this? Oh, Dad, Why? Man, because I said so, man. <laughs> like, I'm dad, and you're not dad, so I said so, right? Like, we kind of double down on our authority. We have something better than that. Because this is the world that God has created, and God desires for me to have authority and care for you. And I believe it's good for you. It's an act of love, and it's an act of trust on your part that you would do what I've asked you to do. Now listen, I, I know you're in the car, you're, people are throwing french fries, you don't got time, right, to kind of walk through this whole theological argument. But my point is simply this, we have a basis for every appeal. If you're a leader of the church, or you're, you're discipling somebody, or you're meeting with somebody, it's not just simply, hey, you need to do this, because that's what Christians do. You need to not do this, because that's what Christians don't do. You have a bigger appeal than that. There's a therefore appeal. Therefore, based on what? Based on who we were and we, who we are now. Based on God's mercy to us and everything that God has done for us. When you add all that together, then the gospel becomes then a motivation for us to do what we're supposed to do and not just to do it because we have to, but then now to start to consider this is a good thing that God has granted to us. The capacity and the opportunity to honor and to worship Him. So that's the motivation, the mercies of God based on everything that we have learned in Romans so far. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. And here's the second part. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is a spiritual worship. To present your bodies as a living sacrifice. And this, listen, this, this is a strange phrase, Right? So if you think about it and you say, okay, I've got to present my body as a sacrifice. Lord, I'm not, I'm not sure what, what's happening here. Well, number one, let, let's think, take a look at the idea of sacrifice. And at first, I was thinking like, you know, like the Jewish people would understand this concept, right, from the Old Testament, and that's absolutely true, right? That you bring living animals, supposed to be unblemished and clean, and then you sacrifice them, right, on the altar. I mean, like, they actually kill these animals. You guys know that? Like, like they bring a, a, a bull, and so you lean in on the bull, and then you're supposed to, the high priest is supposed to cast your sins and the sins of the nation on that bull, and he'll slice his throat. This, sorry, kind of graphic, right? And there's like a river of blood on the Day of Atonement, like gallons and gallons of blood flowing, sprinkled at the altar, all this. There's always death. There's always the, the, the killing, the taking of life of these sacrifices, Right? That's, that's the Jewish concept. And so every Jewish Christian convert in Rome would say, dude, I know exactly what he's talking about. But I was thinking, like, but what do the Gentiles understand? And then I realized, what am I talking about? They come out of a pagan culture. So they would go to the temple of Zeus, 
or the Temple of Artemis, and it would be similar. If not, I'd, it's not identical, but they would go through some kind of ritual thing where they take an animal that is alive and they kill it, they slaughter it, they sprinkle blood or they burn it, etc. See, all of these religions, right, in the past have had an idea of what it means to offer a sacrifice. And the number one thing about offering a, an animal sacrifice is that to offer it means that it will die. You realize that, right? It's not like, you know, I come to offer my sacrifice. Here's my, here's my lamb, you know. And, uh, okay, we done? Okay, good. Oh, let's go home, right? Like, there's none of that. The sacrifice means that you, you may have raised that thing in your home, but you brought it so that it would end its life. So when Paul here uses this illustration, it says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice. One, he means present your bodies. See the word bodies? Implying that, that when you come and you bring like, like this lamb, you know, did you, did you know like the Jewish families, they'd often raise like a, an unblemished lamb like sometimes in their home. They're like a pet. And then they would bring it to sacrifice when it was time. So you can imagine the horror of the, this is just, again, this is speculation on my part, but I, I'm thinking, I'm like, you know, this young Jewish boy, you know, I love Lammy, and I'm going to cuddle with him, and, you know, maybe he even sleeps by me and stuff, and I'm glad to see him, and we play catch, or I, I don't know what, what I, we, I don't know what you play with, I'm not, I'm not, not a farmer, I don't know better, right? But, and then, and then dad says, okay, it's time for us to go to Jerusalem and to offer the sacrifice. I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Let's offer some sacrifice. That's good stuff. Dad, what, what's the sacrifice and what are we offering? Oh, we're going we're gonna to offer lamby. I think I'd be mortified. Like, wait, what? You can't offer my lamby? Go offer something else, you know, like, a, like an old shoe, right? How, how about like, you know, how about that, that rooster that crows too early in the morning? I hate that guy, right? Why not offer something that you don't want? And this is the point. There was an affection. There was a wholeness of this giving up of something that was precious to you. So this is present your bodies as a living sacrifice. The first imprint that that leaves upon us is that Paul is saying that your life is given up into total worship. Your life is given up for total worship. You, you get it? God, to be clear, God is not suggesting that you offer something that is valueless. When he uses terms like present your bodies as sacrifice, he's saying present something that is precious to you and all of you, the whole of you, because it's not so much that he is saying, Paul's not saying, hey, present this physical body. Right? He's saying this body, meaning all of your life. Present it all. Give all of it. The whole person. It immediately makes me think of like sappy love songs, right? There's that one, like, all of me loves all of you, right? I won't sing it. I don't remember the tune that well. But I just thought, man, that is a sappy, sappy song. And I'm not mad at you if you like sappy love songs, etc. That, you know, God bless you. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But that is a relationship. We're talking about the relationship. And the relationship. Paul the Apostle, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, listen, this is what it means to be devoted to God. It means to give of yourself in complete worship. It's like offering your body, not the body of Lammy, but your body as a living sacrifice. That is a lot. But the point is clear. We are to live in such a way, right, 
as if we have surrendered it all. The other part that's interesting about this phrase that doesn't make sense is you present your body, and that part doesn't make sense, right? You usually present some other, some other animal body, but we're supposed to present our bodies, our whole being, our whole life, and we're to present it as a sacrifice, okay, we get that, but as a living sacrifice, right? And like I said, the, the one characteristic of bringing sacrifice is that they will die. But we are to live... We are a sacrifice. This is the unusual part of it, but the idea is absolutely crystal clear. We are to offer our lives in full surrender to the Lord as if we no longer lived and as if Christ lives through us. In fact, Paul says exactly that in Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What does it mean for us to be devoted to God or to live a life of devotion? It means that we are giving of our entire being for total, unhindered worship. And that worship is also holy and acceptable. That's the second phrase there, right? In uh, the second part of verse 1. Holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual worship. Holy and acceptable, that, that terminology really does come from the Old Testament sacrifices. Um, and again, the emphasis being that you don't bring like, like the leftover stuff, the stuff that you didn't care about anyway. It was, it was sinful to bring like, you know, oh, let's bring that lamb. You know, the one that only has three legs and, you know, his eyes are clouded and he kind of, has some weird growths on it, because I don't want to eat that. We should just offer that as a sacrifice, right? Well, that's what, that's what the nation of Israel sometimes would be doing. In Malachi 1.8, says, When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? So God is, through the, through the prophet Malachi, is condemning the nation because they're offering stuff that is not just second best, but is not worthy for regular humans. Do you get this? We are to give to God what is our best. We are to live in such a way as if it's not just for me, myself and I, but it's for the Lord. The one who cast his mercy on us and chose to save us despite us. The one that saw in us nothing that is worthy of salvation, but nevertheless said, you know what, I'm going to love that person. On that basis, we are to give him everything that is our lives. And we are to do it because we're giving him the best of us. So that it's a holy worship. That it is a sacrificial worship. And that it's a reasonable worship. The last part is, uh, that last phrase is, I think is encouraging, which is your spiritual worship. This is where we got to dig in a little bit because it just sounds so weird. Like, this is your spiritual worship? It's like, okay, you can just say it's worship. Why are you adding the word spiritual? The word that is translated spiritual there is not your, 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 your I guess, your expected New Testament term. It's not pneumatos. It's, not, it's nothing to do with, uh, you know, the spirit. It has to do with, with the mind. Is logikos, from which we get our English word logical, right? It pertains to that which is our reason and the mind. So if you're, depending on which uh, modern translation of scripture you're reading, your phrase might be, this is your spiritual worship, or it might be, this is your reasonable worship. 
At least to me, I, I, I take those two words as being very different. You know, is this a spiritual worship? Meaning like it's like, like it's exuberant? Like is it that? Is it your reasonable worship? Is it like, you know, like, mm, let me think about this. And then that's what we worship? The reason why these things sound difficult is because spiritual might be opposed to that which is merely physical. Going through the motions. We sang a song today. Do you guys remember the song we sang? I'm not mad at you if you did it because I'm, I'm, I'm worse than that, right? Like I will literally preach a passage and then you're just in my mental exhaustion. We'll talk to people and stuff and, and people go, hey, uh, so you know that passage you preached today? And I go, what passage? Yeah, what, what was it? What did I preach it? Right? Like I, I, so like we forget things all the time. But the point is that there's a potential of you to walk through your life as an act of worship, as worship duty, just physically, mechanically going through the motions and not spiritually doing it. Do you get that? I mean, I'm sure you get that. You could sing the song and just kind of read the lyrics and sing, and you're thinking about you know, what you're going to eat for lunch, and then you kind of forget, oh, where are we along the song sheet? Where, oh, we're over here. Okay, I just take it. Right? Like, you can go through, you can go through the mechanics of it. You know, someone says, hey, let's, let's bow in prayer. And so you're like, okay, let's bow in prayer. You're not listening or you're not really hearing what's going on. And then at the end, everyone says amen. So you say amen, and then you get up, right? Like, you do what you do. You can go through the physicality of it and it not be a spiritual worship. Similarly, if you use uh, the other way of... Uh, defining of that term reasonable that would be as opposed to that which is just traditional or mechanical you go to church why because i'm supposed to why are you doing that because you have to you're you're supposed to this is mechanical this is what christians do etc that's the opposite of thinking things through of wondering why you do things the way that you do of examining what does prayer mean to me Why, why should i pray and and how can i do that better like, why, why do I read my scriptures regularly, right? Like, should I read it in a certain way that's helpful to me? Is it more helpful to read it in some ways? Should I read a lot? Should I read a little? I mean, the whole point is that you're kind of putting reasons and thought. You're engaging your imagination and your mind to think about how to worship well. That's what Paul is calling us to. He's saying, on the one hand, present yourselves wholly, completely, as if you are all for the Lord. Make it precious, holy, and acceptable to the Lord, because that is our call. That is our reasonable worship, our spiritual worship. It is how we engage our minds and our hearts to total worship of a holy and awesome God who has cast His mercy upon us. That's what it means to be devoted. That's where devotion comes from. Total worship, acceptable and holy worship, and a worship that is informed by our holy imagination so that we are just thinking about how do we worship? How do we live? How do we, how do we exercise a devotion for life? Verse 2. So if we have a motivation for devotion being God's mercy, if the meaning of devotion is just complete and absolute worship, then the fuel of devotion is the renewing of the mind. Verse 2 says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of of your mind, right? So there's a negative and there's a positive. The negative is don't be conformed to the image of this world. It's, it's a word that we get our word scheme, scheme or schematic from. It means don't be pressed into this pattern. You know what I think of? I think of like, you know, like when you make cookies and, and you want to use a cookie cutter, right? And um, um, I'm trying to think, do we have any cookie cutters at home? I don't know if we do anymore because, you know, we hardly make cookies 
because uh, it's not good for me because I have diabetes. And so I know that, that's, let's not dwell on that, right? That's part of, uh, that was part of following Christ well. But anyway, like let's say you have a little cookie cutter, SpongeBob cookie cutter, starfish, whatever it is, right? You have a cookie cutter and you press down on that dough. What happens? That dough, by that pressure and by the cutting, fits the image of the thing, right, the cookie cutter that you press down upon it. That's the whole idea. It's saying don't be squeezed into a certain formulation, a certain scheme, a certain pattern that is like this world. And the word for world is not the cosmos. It's I own. It's the world age. It's not saying don't be exactly like this earth, right? It's saying don't be like whatever your current culture, whatever the worldview outside the doors of the church is. Don't be easily conformed to saying amen to these things that are what the world says is the way that you should think, is the way that you should, ha- uh, you should live, right? The, the world's thoughts, its views, its opinions, its beliefs. Don't be conformed to that, not easily. Instead, so there's the putting off of something and the putting on of something, be transformed by the renewal of the mind. Transform, right? That, that's a fantastic word, right? It means for something to become something completely different. We always use, you know, the metamorphosis. That, that's the, the term that, that, we, that derives from that Greek word here. But we always think about, like, you know, caterpillar becoming butterfly. And that is brilliant and amazing, Right? God has created this, this landworm, right? Walking around, you know, kind of fuzzy sometimes, just eating stuff and eating stuff and gets really large, right? I guess that's a pretty decent life if you're going to be a bug, right? You just eat until you want to sleep, and then you make a little cocoon. It's called something else, right? I remember my kids saying, Dad, it's not, it's not a cocoon. It's a something. I don't know. Not a scientist, just pastor, right? And, and nevertheless, right? Then it breaks out and it forms wings and it flies. It's like that's that's like night and day. There's a there's a little worm sneaking around eating leaves, and this guy flies around with these beautiful wings. Transformation. The, the the scripture seems to suggest that there is a transformation that is taking place in Christians if they will resist conformity to this world's way of thinking and living and instead be transformed by something else, specifically transformed by the renewing of the mind. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, and he uses the same term, are being transformed. We're being changed, right? Metamorphosized. We are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's a mouthful, and it might sound kind of weird at first, but what, what the Scriptures are saying there, what Paul is writing there in 2 Corinthians 3.18, is that we are from one, one glorious change, right, transformation, to another transformation, to another transformation. We are growing into Christ's image by the power of the Spirit one step at a time. It's progressive sanctification. This, this is how we grow. Lord willing, if you've been a believer for a while, then you are, you are growing in your faith, your confidence, your service, your love, your delight, your joy in the things of the Lord, right, over the course of time. 
That's how it goes. And there's times when we kind of fall back a little, but we keep on going. That's the beauty of it. You keep on moving slowly, not perfectly, but it's kind of like, you know, you're going up and down, and, but you're headed upwards. This is the transformation. But the transformation takes place, according to Paul here, specifically in the realm of the mind. So instead of being conformed to the image of this world, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Renewing of your mind. The word for renewal means exactly that. It means to be made new again. It means to be reprogrammed, right? Recalibrated might be the best way for us to think about it, right? You got to calibrate things sometimes. Like, it's a little bit off. Are you guys into coffee? Like, I, I, I have guys at church that are like crazy coffee snob coffee dudes. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Like, they'll like do the pour over stuff. Like, they'll like literally measure the beans. You guys, you guys haven't experienced that? Listen, these guys are tense. They only buy certain beans because, you know, like, no, man, I'm not going to eat. I'm not going to drink that kind of bean, right? Drinking that, you know, that Starbucks bean. Like, it's got to be some, some foo-foo thing from Ethiopia, some blend or non-blend or single origin, right? But they'll measure their beans. Then they'll grind it. It has to be a burr grinder, right? You don't, you don't just grind it in some blade. No, no. And I'm like, um... I, you know, I can just smash it. I don't care. What's, what's the big deal, right? But no, no, you got to burr grind it. And then after you burr grind it and you add that and your temperature of the water has to be a certain thing. And you got to, and here's the thing, and this is what I'm getting to. So if you, if you are devoted to coffee, right, you have to, you have to dial in the grind setting. I, I know, right? Like, because I can see from your face, you're like, oh, what? what are you about? Right? Because if you have a good burr grinder, you could set it, right? You could make it more coarse, you know what I mean? Or you can make it fine as the finest sand. And depending on what kind of coffee, apparently, right? If, if you like a light roast, you got you to gotta, you gotta set it a little bit finer, closer to super fine sand, right? So you got to, you they call it dialing it in. You got to like dial it, you got to set that, and then you do it, and then you make your coffee the exact same way you do, pour over, you know, very slowly, Right? Let it, let it drip down, and you taste it, and you're like, oh, okay, that's good. That's good. Mm, I feel like it's a little bitter. And I can't remember. If it's bitter, then you got to either go a little coarser, or what? I, I can't remember. Maybe some of you guys are into it, you know. Right? But you got to keep, you got to dial it in until you get it just right, because you got a whole bag of this particular bean that costs a billion dollars, right? And you've got to use that in a way that is, is best utilizing. So you're dialing that in. That's calibration. See, you, 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 you try this, and then you try this. You're thinking about it and go, wait a minute. That tasted this way. And so i got to dial that back a little bit. Or maybe my temperature is too hot. It is complicated, bros, right? It is really complicated. Nevertheless, the point is there's an active engagement to recalibrate whatever we're doing. This is what it's talking about, guys. Don't make it crazy. It's just simple. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. This is how you do it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the recalibration of your mind. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what, what does it mean to recalibrate, to to to, to dial in, right, our worship, our devotion to the Lord through the renewing, the redialing in, the recalibration of our minds. At the very least, it means that we are feeding our minds things that pertain to the things of the Lord. 
Listen, if all of your input and your opinions and your affections, right, your anxieties, your fears, your concerns, your loves, your joys, if they're only fed by movies, right, by, you know, Netflix, or, or by Twitter or Facebook, right, if they're only fed by those things that are just like the world, then tell me which, which side are you leaning in on? Are you being conformed to the image of this world? Are you being transformed by the refreshing, renewal, recalibration of your thinking and your heart? It's really hard for me to say that if, if my feelings, right, and, and I, I run across this when I counsel some of our members, right, sometimes they are so anxious about this thing or that thing to the point that they are emotional. And the thing that I want to encourage them with, and I don't, I don't say it bluntly or harshly, but I want them to recognize something. Where your affections lie, that is what's most precious to you. It's okay for you to say that, hey, this is an injustice in the world. I'd like to see it fixed. But if that is the primary thing that drives your anxiety, your fears, your loves, that's your God. Whatever owns your heart is your God. A sister of Christ yesterday asked me, hey, how do you know if something's an idolatry? If something that you like, something that you care about is, is an actual idol of your heart. I said, it's simple. Will you sin for it? Will you lie for it? Will you get angry at people and, you know, then use language that you, you know you shouldn't be using over it, right? Will you lose your temper over it? It's like, then it's an idol because there's only one God who deserves full body, full, complete, absolute committed, holy and acceptable worship. In other words, let me put it this way. There's only one God who deserves the full brunt of all of your affection. And whatever draws your heartstrings to the point that you're willing to sin over it, that's an idol. That's a counterfeit God. We need to recalibrate our minds so that we are constantly desiring more of this one true God. And like Jeremiah 9 says, you can't know, you can't love a God that you don't know. You could you boast about this, you could boast about that, but you are boasting that you know, right? You know and understand who God is. I, I love that because when Jeremiah 9 talks about that, it uses two words for knowledge. It's like knowing the entire scheme as a whole, right? And then relationally connecting to it from a distance, meaning, meaning that it's both like knowing, it's almost like saying it's the book knowledge and it's the relational knowledge, you know? I know my wife. I know who she is. I know some statistics about her. She's the shortest person in our immediate family, right? She's like, my wife is like 5'2". So where is 5'2 about there? Like she's, she's little. She's a little cute. She's wonderful. Is there, but see, that's the second knowledge, right? Like I can give you details about her and then I could tell you things that I know about her that, that just I know about her, that I love about her, right? That, that's what we're supposed to be with God. And the, the more we are engaging and calibrating ourselves to know more and more the, uh, about who God is and what he is like, the more it protects and allows us, it fuels us to be able to be devoted to him. Psalm 119, 9 and 10, well, familiar words. How can a young man keep his way pure? It's a great question. By guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart 
I might not sin against you. So the word is a means of renewing or refreshing our minds, thinking about who God is. Because if you read your scriptures, at the very least, whether it's two verses or it's an entire chapter or several chapters, back up and say, what am I learning about God? What does it say about God? Who is God? Who am I? And why is God good? Right? Be renewed in the formulation and the calibration of our minds. Colossians 3, 9 and 10 says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creation. Guys, just so the I'm not saying that, that what you need is to just constantly read. I'm not saying there's some magic in the, the formations of ink on, on the pages of your Bible, right? In fact, there is no power words. There is no incantation. There is no, you know, formulation of, of words that kind of draws and brings power. That's all paganism. What I'm saying is that the scriptures use... Use simple and plain language to inform us about who God is. We need to drink that in. We need to look and explore and wonder and let the word of Christ dwell in us richly. Okay, I'll stop, I'll stop uh, my soapbox on this, but uh, let me say this. Right? You guys ever heard of, you, I'm sure you guys have heard of the term perspicuity. Perspicuity, scripture. That's a weird word, right? That's a good word, though. It, it means that something is simple and clear. And it's a, it's a, when we say that uh, we believe in the perspicuity of Scripture, you know what we mean? We mean that God has given us the Word of God in knowable language. It's not some weird, you know, it's not the Bhagavad Gita, right? I think that's a, isn't that a Hindu word. I don't know. But it's not one of those where you've got to read it, and it says something weird like, you know, red is the color of faith, and you're like, yeah, what does that mean? And then you got to, like, mystically draw some alley. No, it literally says, hey, I'm going to appeal to you guys by God's mercy. Remember God's mercy? I just wrote about that. Go read that, right? To present your bodies as the living sacrifice. All of these words have meaning, have knowable meaning, have simple meaning, that if we learn how to read, that we'll start to get to it. Some of it, listen, some of it is a little bit harder to read. I get that. But the point is, he gave it to us in human language, not in some mystical, spiritual, alien text form where you got to read it and then some, some, something like kind of zaps you and then all of a sudden you are renewed in your mind. No, you just read it. You think about it, right? You ask questions about it. You ask other people about it. That, that's literally how you approach the Word of God. And I love that. Parents with young kids, do you guys realize the single most valuable thing that your child might learn in school is how to read. But you know why? Because the written scriptures, this is God's communication to all humanity. He codified it in written words that are perspicuous, that are easy for us to learn, to read, and ex- approachable to understand. It's the reading, hearing, thinking, knowing, consideration of who God is, and the more the thoughts of God are upon our hearts, the more we are being recalibrated, the more we are dialing in the devotion of our lives, the more we are starting to think of how I want to do this and not how I have to do this. You can't love what you don't know, right? And the more you know about him, the more you dig into his mercy, I think the more you delight in who God is and what he's done for you. Here's the last part. 
The result of this kind of devotion is joyful purpose. Look at the last part of verse 2. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that which is good, acceptable, and perfect. There is power and life and energy in a life in a life that is marked by a clear purpose. And purpose is what, you know, devotion to God, renewal of our minds, giving ourselves wholeheartedly to worship Him, not just with our mouths, but with our lives. That purpose, joyful purpose, is what is given to us. Alexander McLaren, one of the great Scottish preachers, said this, to know beyond doubt what I ought to do, and knowing to do it seems to me to be heaven on earth. And the man that has it needs but little more. And I mean, you know, I should have read it with a Scottish accent. To know beyond doubt. And that's, that's, that's me. That almost sounds like a leprechaun. No, rather, the idea is this. Alexander McLaren simply saying this. Look, if you know what you're here to be, he says, that's like heaven on earth. If you know what you're here to do, what you're supposed to be, knowing it and doing it, that is a satisfaction that will feed your soul and it feels like heaven on earth because you know exactly why God has saved you and what he has saved you to be. And it's not just to do these things like some kind of soldiers or robots, but it's to do these things because they delight the God that we love, the one that has rescued our souls. So that by testing, and I love that, it means by discerning, by using our minds to engage in this, we are figuring out what is God's will for us. Not necessarily, you know, who I'm supposed to marry, what I'm going to have for lunch, where I should work, right? But overall, to know this is what God wants for my life. And that is a fuel for us. That is energy for us. Because once we discern God's will and the direction of our lives and what we are supposed to do, then we are living what we are supposed to be. And there's a tremendous satisfaction in that. The last phrase, what is good, acceptable, and perfect, it describes um, that which would be a righteous and good sacrifice. Right? Every sacrifice brought to the Lord in the Old Testament was supposed to be good and acceptable. But the last part, perfect, is the word for perfection by way of completing the puzzle. It's like, we're headed towards that which is complete, which is, which is final, which is what God has designed us to be. See, the, the battle for, for our devotion is not a battle of whether or not we will do something. The battle for our devotion is a battle for whether or not we will will ourselves to desire something greater than simply, I want what I desire and what my pleasure is and what I want to pursue in this world. It is to live for something that's greater than us. And when we do, and when we fuel ourselves to do, man, our desires are filled. Our satisfaction is full. Our energy is renewed. And we are willing to do whatever the Lord asks us to do and find tremendous joy in it. And you might think, okay, but what if, I, what if I think I could find joy in sin and other things? You can for a moment. Just think about any sin that you've been battling. That momentary joy, what comes after that? Is that an eternal joy? Is that a fueling joy? Is that a joy that continues to give and makes you strong? The joy of the Lord in devotion to him 
is that you have a purpose that doesn't end and that satisfies your soul. So this is why we are saved. This is what the gospel does. The gospel is the basis, the motivation for our devotion to the Lord and motivation to, 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 to worship him with all of our being. And, and the, the renewal of our minds is the fuel that keeps that devotion going. And the result of that devotion is joyful purpose in this life until the Lord comes for us. I mean, that is what the Christian life is meant to be. And so before we talk about all the duties, we take all of the theology that we've learned, we apply it to our thinking, to our lives, to our attitudes, and now we're ready to obey the Lord and his call to whatever we're supposed to do. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your, your glad word to us this morning. And, and Lord, we, we do ask that you would transform our affections, our thoughts, our emotions, so that we would be all for you. Renew our minds, our souls, not just our thinking or our intellect, but the way that we think, the things that we love, so that it might be glorious to our God and Savior, who out of no, no reason or out of no necessity has poured his grace and his love upon us. We praise you for our life in Christ and ask that you would help us to live for your glory. In Jesus' name.